may be seated. Good morning, I'm Paul Joyner, one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us today, we're so glad that you're here. Um, if you would like some more information on our church, uh, you can fill out one of those visitor cards in front of you and just leave that in the offering plate, which you can find in the back um, or up here in the front. Also, if you would like to uh, give your tithes or offering, you can do that online through our website or also put that in the offering plate. It's good to be back with you. Um, I have, we have missed you uh, while we are gone. Thank you so much for all the encouragement um, that you have given us um, through emails and texts and cards. Um, I've told many of you, as I find as the older I get, the more I am dependent on the encouragement of others. Um, it's a lost art often within the church. Um, and having been given so much encouragement by Christ and his gospel, we should be of people who encourage each other all the more. Life is hard um, and difficult, and all of us are weary. Um, and so um, let's, let's make, just make that just the practice of our culture as a church. And so thank you so much for, for what you've given us in that encouragement. Well, we're back in 1 Corinthians. If you're, again, joining with us, we regularly work through books of the Bible. and We've been working through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. I'm going to read chapter 9, uh, starting with verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 23. This is God's word. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope. Of sharing in the crop. If, you have sown, if we have sown spiritual things among you. Is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you. Do not we even more? Nevertheless. We have not made use of this right. But we endure anything. Rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get food? Get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rites. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provisions. For I would rather die 
Then have anyone deprived me of my ground for boasting? For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with stewardship. What then is my reward? Then in my preaching... I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant, slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became As one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. This is God's word. The wisdom of man will crumble like grass that receives no rain. But when the word of the Lord comes, it comes to bring new life. Let's pray and ask him to bless his word preached this morning. Lord, we need to hear from you. Our wisdom fails. We've tried life by our own strength. We have cobbled together dreams and ambitions that have failed us and cannot sustain us. And so speak to us, Lord Jesus. Crucified for our sins, reigning over all creation, having all power and authority by your spirit. Speak to us today. We need to hear your voice And be revived by it and shaped by it and comforted by it and encouraged by it. It is you that we want. And so speak to us today through your word preached. For we pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. Well, this section of 1 Corinthians really starts back with 8.1 and goes all the way through 11.1 and it's an extended question about how one in Christ uses their freedom and their rights. It starts with them, Paul addressing a question in 8.1 that they had brought to him. Now he writes concerning food offered to idols and then ends all the way three chapters later with 11.1. Be imitators of me as I am in Christ. Now here's the context we've been saying all along. Of all the letters that Paul wrote, of all the churches that he wrote to and planted, that the culture of Corinth is the one that mirrors, the ancient culture of Corinth mirrors most like our own culture today in America. And there's this temptation there as there is here to preserve individual rights as ultimate. Or for some, an an overcorrection of that to deny that individual rights are are and should be preserved as the pendulum swings back and forth. And Paul's point to them as as he writes to them is, is to say, look, in Christ you have 
individual rights. In Paul's case, as he's making the point here in chapter 9, it's his right to receive an income from the church. But here's his point. In Christ, none of our rights and freedoms are ultimate. That the cross of Jesus Christ, Christ and Him crucified, is the only thing that can hold ultimate spot within the church of Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean by that. We have to learn to make distinctions between important and ultimate. We all function this way whether we realize it or not. In fact, most of the time, the failure to recognize the difference between important values and ultimate values is what creates a lot of conflict within church bodies. We have things that for all of us are important things. In fact, this is what Paul was dealing with back in the first three chapters. There were important things that had become ultimate things and were creating factions within the church. And even in our own culture, we live in a time when important values, every important value has to rise to the level of ultimate value. It's where outrage becomes a virtue. Everything is equally ultimate and therefore we've got to, if we're going to hold these, everything has to hold ultimate value. And so we need to be outraged at everything. It becomes a value. We show our moral superiority by being outraged about things that are ultimate for all of us. And we, we fail to recognize that important, not every important thing can hold the value of ultimate thing. Not everything can be equally ultimate at all times. Some things are worthy of anger, but not all things are ultimate. Maybe I can give us a little more meddling, down-to-earth example of this. It's Sunday. The local church and worshiping Jesus are important to you. Following Jesus is important to you and your family. You're highly committed to it. But travel ball is playing on Sunday. You seldom miss worship because it is an important value to you. But you see, when these two things clash together, you have to make the decision as to what is ultimate. One has to be demoted. And this is oftentimes where we see the difference between ultimate and important values. When they come in conflict with each other and you have to make a decision, you are willing to sacrifice the important things for the ultimate things. I've sat with a lot of parents whose children have grown up and walked away from the faith. And, and they would say to me, we, we've, we so valued, we don't know what we taught. We read the Bible daily. We had family worship together. We taught them. We catechized them. But then they just slowly walked away. Well, what happened? And like, well... Every time you had to make a decision between travel ball and worship, what they learned was Jesus doesn't hold ultimate spot for you. But this goes on with all of our values all of the time. Equal, important, and ultimate are two different things. And Paul's point in, in dealing with the question of rights is that rights and freedoms for a Christian are important. But the cross of Christ 
is the only ultimate value and has to shed its light on how we use our rights and privileges and freedoms within the body that is shaped by the blood-bought Son of God. That's why I'm generally uncomfortable with the language of Judeo-Christian values, right? Because look, for Christ, in, for those who are in Christ, there, there are no shared values. The cross of Christ is ultimate. It's the the sun around which every other important thing within Jesus' people orbits, and it casts its light on everything. Nothing, no value can be seen apart from the Son of God crucified, shining its light on everything. And here's the way the cross sheds its light on everything. The grace of God is like rain that falls from the sky. It will not stop until it finds the deepest and darkest places and rests there, until it brings new life. And that's got to shape our, our use of rights. It's, it's true that the grace of God will run down until it finds the deepest and darkest places of our hearts. And it will not, God will not rest until he rests in those deepest and darkest places to bring new life there. Water the most parched places of our hearts and souls. But it has to, well, if that's the trajectory of God's grace, it has to inform the way we use our rights and our freedoms so that it's constantly moving down to the weakest and most vulnerable. That's what it means to belong to Jesus. Now, with that as the backdrop, that's a long preface. To, uh, and if you hear long prefaces, it probably means there's going to be a long sermon. Um, so just disclaimer. Set expectations early, as they say. Now, if that is the backdrop, we can see what Paul's actually doing in 1 Corinthians 9. Because at first glance, it seems that he's defending himself as an apostle and defending his right to get paid by the church as a minister of the gospel. But in fact, he's simply telling them, he's expanding on them this tremendous right so he can say to them, look, I'm not taking advantage of it. Because that's the way of the kingdom. So he starts out in verse 4. Do we not have the right? He's building a case here. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? He's like, I have this right, I have this right, I have this right. But then he, he amps it up a little bit more in verse 6. We also have the right to be supported and paid for the work of the ministry that we're doing amongst you. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Paul was a tent maker. He had, he had particularly with the church in Corinth, he had not taken any money from them. But he, so he's making the case. And then he gives some everyday examples. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who does this? Right? If you go to one of the reasons that many go to serve in the military is because it's a good place to work and serve. They'll take care of you. Who plants a vineyard without getting any of its fruit? That's why you have gardens, so you can eat from them. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? This is the way the world works. I have a right to get paid for the work that I'm doing in your midst as a servant of Jesus Christ. It's just the way the world works. Then he ups it up a little bit. 
And you look around you and you say, this is the way the world works. You work, you get paid. You serve, you, get a, you have a right to get remunerated for it. But then he goes to the law of God in verse 8. He's building his case. I'm not making this up just by observing the world around me. God has codified this in his law. Then verse 9, he quotes, you should not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then in verse 11, he argues from the lesser to the greater. If we've sown spirit, this is, the, this is his zinger. If we've sown spiritual things amongst you, do we not have the right to reap from you material things? If others share this right, do we not all the more? As an apostle of Jesus Christ who saw him raised from the dead, who had a vision of him, do I not have the right even more than others do? And here's the general principle. It's the normal way God's kingdom that those who minister God's word should get paid by the flock of God. They have a right to reap material things from those who receive the seed of God's word planted in them. It's a seed when God plants his word that bears fruit 30 times, 60 times, even 100 times that which is sown. It's it's food for the weary. God's word brings life to the most dead souls. It awakens us to Jesus Christ and our need for him. It feeds us in the weariness of our journey. It is an implanted word that brings new life to the dead. It's the word of the resurrected Jesus to the absolutely hopeless and destitute. It's an oasis of grace to the weary. It's new water for parched desert you see what he's doing since the word of God is the voice of Jesus Christ and him crucified and he has sent Paul to the church of Corinth to a place that had no gospel has now come alive and been an outpost of Jesus's body on the face of the earth does Paul not have the right to be compensated according to what he brings to them. And you see what he's doing. He's raising the bar. As he builds the case. And you see why Paul is doing this. He is shepherding them. By appealing to them. To what they value the most as a culture. Because like our own culture our own place in this time in history of the world, Corinth, was very much like ours. It was a, a meritocracy. Their desire was to use their powers and their privileges to make the world a revolve around them. That's why rights are so important to them. And generally, our own ability to make the world revolve around us, it's why we constantly are trying to make next generation move even higher up on the ladder, they, they need to achieve more. They need to gain more. Because as they do, we have more resources at our disposal. And the primary resource that we use to make this happen is money. Perhaps money is the most potent resource. Because what it does is money is the key that unlocks all kinds of opportunities for us. As money increases... Our dependency on others decreases. We become more independent. We can make the world what we want. As money increases, our ability to pursue the next big thing increases. And so inversely, ironically, sadly, so does. As opportunities increase, so does our joy decrease. Money brings power and freedoms that power 
provides, doors open up for us. And Paul's point is, as an apostle, he has a right to be compensated in proportion to the value that he's bringing them. And the Corinthians think they have mature because they have knowledge. They know what their rights are. But Paul's saying the mark of maturity is not that you embrace your freedoms and your rights, but that you give them up for the sake of others. Because grace always flows down to the weakest and neediest. And it will not rest until the deepest and darkest places have the life of Jesus Christ flowing in them. So verse 12, second half of verse 12. If you've got your Bible, it actually starts a new paragraph here. This is Paul's point. He's not just simply taking, he's not saying, look, um, I deserve as an apostle to be compensated in direct proportion to what I am bringing to you. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such provisions. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my grounds for boasting. You see what he's done? He's just elevated. He's like, I, I have the greatest right of any of you. A right to be compensated in direct proportion to the value of what I am bringing to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But love is measured by what it gives and what it gives up. For God loved the rebellious, sin-cursed world that hated him and he loved by giving his only begotten son. The son loved his people so much that he gave up his privileges to heaven to become a slave, a servant to the rebels who had kicked him out and said, this is my world, I want it my way. He said, without me serving you by giving my life up for you, you will only reach the end of being under the wrath of God unless I give myself up, lay down my rights, Take up your cause and give you all that I have. And the Father and the Son so loved his people. It was not enough for simply the Son to accomplish our salvation, but to give us his spirit so we might know the depths of the riches and experience the grace of God in our lives. Does the Father love me? I love you. I'm giving you my spirit so you might know that love. Love is measured by what it gives and gives up. And therefore, the mark of maturity in Christ is what you are willing to give up for the sake of others, knowing the riches of Christ Jesus and him crucified. I've been asked a few times recently, why aren't we a more multi-ethnic church? What's getting in the way? I'm pretty sure looking back on these conversations that each one of these, they are fishing to see if I'm a proponent of critical race theory, which I'm not, because we're just on a witch hunt for that right now. As I sat and thought about it, my answer in every single one of these instances was, it's our unwillingness to move away from our preferences into uncomfortable places. 
How many of us have friends who are of different ethnicities? It's a better category, not physical features like skin color or hair texture, but ethnicities. We need to move into people's lives, know their stories, lay down their comforts. So the discussions around race right now are so supercharged, it's hard to work through the complexities of it, so we just kind of back away. It's the, it's the unfortunate part of this present cultural moment as things have jacked up so high and become so complicated, we just back away from it. We're not willing to enter in. We just don't want to deal with it. I've never, I've said this repeatedly. I've not put my heart and head to anything as more complex and as exhausting as trying to think through the issues of race. But this is where we've got to go. I mean, it's, if, if, we, if we want to make any progress towards seeing the church look more like the Lamb's throne in heaven, where every nation, tribe, and tongue are gathered singing praises to the Lamb that was slain, if we want the kingdom on earth to be as it is in heaven, we're going to have to put down our comfort, put down our preferences, move into difficult places, and lay down our rights to comfort for the sake of others who live life differently than us. It's hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant, it's actual slave, to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now, that's a serious business for Paul and Timothy. Paul had Timothy circumcised in adulthood so that he wouldn't be a stumbling block to reaching the Jews. And I'm sure this is the way the discussion went. Hey, Timothy, you know you're free from the demand to get circumcised, right? I mean, the people of Jesus don't have to get circumcised to enjoy the privileges of a relationship with Jesus. You're free from that. You know that, Timothy. Oh, yes, that's the glorious freedom of the gospel. It's Jesus plus nothing else. Okay, let's go find a priest with a knife for the sake of others knowing that freedom. No one's asking you to do that. But can we be willing to put down important things for the sake of ultimate things? Because the people of Jesus must look like the king of the kingdom in the way we carry out life in this world. That means on one hand we make no compromises or even adjustments to the gospel. Right? We hold Christ Jesus and him crucified with a tight hand. Nothing is going to move that We can't compromise the teachings of Jesus. We can't adjust the word of God to the culture. The broken and cursed world needs the riches and depths of the word of God. We've always got to be careful. We can't remake the image of Jesus 
into the image of this world because the world around us needs to be remade into the image of God's own son. We'll never, they'll never flourish until that's the case. And the church in that way will always be weird. We'll always be awkward. We've got to embrace that. But part of our awkwardness as well has to be that we are willing to give up our rights, important rights and preferences so that others might know Jesus. Let our weirdness be more than just our message, our sexual ethic. Let our weirdness as well be that in a world that demands everything gets curated so that I can experience my best expression of my fullest self now. Instead, it's curated around the cross of Christ. I'm willing to give up everything so that you might know the freedom of the one who is everything and gave up everything so that we might have the riches of God's glory free of because free of any cost to us because the grace of God is like rain. It always flows downhill the deepest and darkest places and it will not rest until it waters those places to bring new life. And this creates even a new way to boast. Look at verse 15 and 16. It's, Paul's just dripping. At this point, he's just dripping with irony, with the economy of God's grace. We typically boast to get attention, to get applause. Let me roll out my... Can I, even a humble brag is just an attention-seeking... I want to gather things to me. It's why we boast. It's, the irony is, and the, the sad irony is, when we're, we're doing, look what I've done is really just rolling out your resume saying, look at how much I'm lacking in this world. I need your attention, your affection, your applause. But in Christ, the gospel's just flipped, even boasting on its head. Now he's boasting in the radical riches of Christ that moves him to radically give up everything. Listen to one commentator put this way Paul has found a reward more valuable than rights he is exhilarated by the freeness of the gospel it's free he's shouting your whole world runs on purchasing paying earning deserving entitlement the gospel doesn't run on any of that it's free and I want you to know that so badly I want you to experience this good news for yourself so much that I'll live my life in a way that calls your whole system into question I'm going off script and that's going to frustrate you but you have to see that the entire game of entitlement is a joke. And the way I'm going to do that is to show you how absolutely radically secure and rich and free I am in Christ by giving up just about everything that's important for your sake. But there's one last thing that we need to focus on. And it's the end of verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. In the, in the multiplying of people sharing in the riches of Christ, 
there is a greater blessing that comes to God's people. I mean, this is really just so upside down, right? If you make your needs central, as we're constantly hearing, the if you make your needs central, then you'll have full life. Paul's saying that's not the way the gospel, the gospel is even better than that. Because as we give up for the sake of others, knowing Jesus actually increases my experience of the blessings of the gospel. It's like an, a catalyst, an amplifier. The more I give up for others to know the riches of, life, of Christ, then I actually share more in the blessings because there's such a deep and profound depth to a community where Christ Jesus in him crucified alone holds the ultimate spot. And we look around at our neighbors who don't know Jesus, at the hurting within our own congregation, to our brothers and sisters who are wrestling, to the weak, to the vulnerable. And we say, um, what can I give up for your sake? Because the more I give up, as Jesus says, the more I'll find my life. It's the irony of the gospel. There's a profound depth to a community where we look at the needs of others and say, how, how can God's grace keep flowing downhill until it reaches the deepest, darkest crevices in our community, in Murray County, in our own lives? This is, st please stick around and listen to this stuff to Metanoia Prison Ministry. This is just so applicable today to have him here and God's kindness to put these two things together. But to be a people who are shaped not by demanding in our own rights, but instead saying, I have a right, it's important, and I'm going to lay it down into your weakness. If you're depressed, I want to enter into your depression. If you're Stricken by poverty, I want to enter into your poverty. If you're addicted, let me enter into the crack house and find you and bring you home. A community of grace that's created where the way of the gospel is that we're going to outdo one another in showing honor. It's that kind of community where we begin to share the blessings of the gospel together. And it becomes, as we give up our rights for the sake of others, we actually increase our own sense of the blessings of God that are ours in Christ. I mean, for those of you who cook, you get this. I mean, the great joy of cook. I mean, no one likes to cook an elaborate meal and sit down and eat it by yourself. The great joy of cooking is gathering everyone around and seeing their face come alive with the work that you've done for them. So let me share you this quote from C.S. Lewis after his friend Charles died. There are three friends who regularly gathered together. C.S. Lewis, the friend Charles who had died and, and who he refers to as Ronald, which was J.R. Tolkien. And he says this, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all the facets of my friend's. And now that Charles is dead, I'll never see again Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. And so far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I actually have less of Ronald. 
And this friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul seeing him in their own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That says an old author is why the seraphim and Isaiah are singing holy, holy, holy to the Lord. It's amplifying their own experience as they do this. The more thus we share the heavenly bread between us, the more of it we shall have. On the other side of laying down your rights for the sake of others, knowing more of Jesus and his radical freedom is actually all of us together enjoying more of Jesus and his actual radical freedom together. So as we come to the table together as slaves of the king, the king of glory whose grace runs downhill, may it be the trajectory and ambition of our lives that we would add more family members to this table. As the broken and the weak can come share together with the blessings of Christ. That together we might know more of the riches of the glory of his grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your table, we would ask that you would take these ordinary elements of bread and wine and nourish us they remind us they remind us the debt was paid through your blood and your body and they serve as seals to us that all of your riches are ours May we know and experience deep in our souls again today that you paid it all and we are free. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen.